0: Alexis, I would be uh, remiss, I think, if I didn't ask about the history of of Memphis Animal Services. When I think of Memphis, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Unfortunately, my initial thought is not a great one. There's been, I don't know, I think you probably describe it as maybe a checkered past Obviously, things have changed a lot, so give me the background and take me to where you are today.
1: Yeah, um, I think checkered past is a nice way to put it, and I think Brittany and I can both speak to this because we both lived sort of on the outside of that for quite some time, and we were reviewers um, of the, the horrible things that were happening. You know, I think that you can put a lot of, uh, reason behind it. Some would have been, you know, operational leadership issues and some would have been bad people. Um, you know, individuals who were bad people, but ultimately what was happening was that, um, this, this, system of Memphis Animal Services was failing our community. We didn't have the right people in place who were mission-driven to be there. We didn't engage the community. There was a, a real sense of secrecy, a lack of transparency that I think sort of permeated the operations. And when um, I actually worked at Spay Memphis, where Brittany was, that's how she and I got to know each other um, prior to joining Animal Services before I you know, took over at the city. And that was in 2016 when our current mayor was elected. So Mayor Jim Strickland came in former council member, and is is an animal lover and an advocate. His wife is, you know, involved in rescue. They love to do rescue stuff. And he really made that a campaign platform, that he was going to replace the previous director, bring in someone new who was mission-driven, who had actual animal related experience. And I was, I guess you could say lucky enough to be the selected candidate, although as Brittany knows, I didn't feel very lucky at the beginning. People in this community were impatiently waiting for change. And I can't blame them. Um, and so when I first took over, I found you know a lot of people who didn't want to even give us time to make change. Uh, in fact, I think there was a petition to have me fired within three months. I remember an early on advisory board meeting that had to get moved to a bigger room at the library because there were so many people with protest signs. Uh, Brittany was there supporting me along with the team from Spay Memphis. But what's amazing is that despite that level of, of dissatisfaction early on, I think that we really responded in rapid form. Um, and And I worked quickly to try to get the right team members in place that could work in that way. And so within six months, we put an end to cat euthanasia for space um we, we stopped doing that in um, november of 2016 and haven't looked back it'll be four years this november since we've euthanized a cat for space small dogs puppies we're at about the three-year mark on that and like many shelters around the country our last remaining up until covid our last remaining challenge was those large breed adult dogs oftentimes with pit bull or bull like qualities to them but i will say since covid the last time we euthanized an animal for space was march 12th and i'm i'm calling that you know a day that shall live in infamy because our hope and goal is to never do that ever again and ultimately it is because we have focused so heavily on community engagement partnerships with other shelters and specifically partnerships with organizations like spay memphis that are really going to be the the operational key to reducing what
0: comes into our shelter long term the progress is incredible and i i just you know i don't know that people realize to speak to what you said about people hating you i think i've said this on the podcast before the job you have it's so difficult you're one of a slew of badass women in this work who are in really difficult positions i think of you brenda barnett in la rebecca Gwynn in atlanta reese in new yorks we just had susan russell on the podcast you know she was the director in chicago these are in many ways, highly political jobs, right? Internally and externally with the public, it's pressure. It's a job, uh, sort of like mine, you know, (laughs) where someone's always pissed off at you. And I just think it takes a lot of guts to even be willing to do it so I thank you for it.
1: Well, thank you. And 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 I think that the numbers and the data is something that, you know, we've been really happy and, you know, Brittany and I talk about this all the time. We've been really happy that that's been where the nation has gone, you know, really under that leadership of organizations like Best Friends, you know, with that national life saving dashboard that we're all putting our data into shelter animals count, because what the data clearly shows is that Memphis is on the right trajectory. If you look at 2009. The save rate at our shelter was about 15%. Fast forward 10 years and we're at nearly 90%. So the trajectory is evident. What we're doing is evident. And I think that the critical thing now is to figure out how we pivot, right? Because if animals aren't dying in the shelter, that doesn't mean the problem's solved, right? That's like one piece of, of the problem that I've had to focus a lot of energy on. But now the conversation is, what are we doing with our officers in conjunction with Brittany's team at Spay Memphis in conjunction with other shelters in conjunction with rescue groups in conjunction with resource providers, private vet clinics. But what are we doing to continue the work outside of the four walls of the shelter? And that's really the future that we're all trying to paint because that's where we're at. I mean, piling a bunch of animals in a shelter is not only not best practices anymore, but it's not even operationally feasible with COVID. You know, we've learned that really quickly. So it's looking to next steps and how community involvement can be the answer instead of let's round everything up and bring it on to the shelter because that just doesn't that that's not how it has to be and it's not working.
0: All right, so I want to talk about spay and neuter, and really, I mean, like, what's the point? Why do we even do it? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But the <laughs> genesis of the episode, I think, was. Sort of like that, where there there is a never-ending, seems, claim or belief, if you will, that spay and neuter is the only thing. I still see, and I hear it today, it's all over social media, and this isn't just like armchair activists who really don't understand the work. There are people who do this, who have said to me, to my face, that anything other than spay and neuter is a waste of money. And of course, that's not true. But it's also untrue to believe it has no impact. So, Brittany, tell me about your work with Spay Memphis. And I can only imagine that you feel like you've played a role in the success of Memphis.
2: Um, yeah, I absolutely think so. I'd like to think that um our whole Spay Memphis team had at least some part of lowering the numbers at MAS for sure. Since you know, 2015, 2016, we have just continuously done more and more surgeries every year. I think we started at around 4,500. So, um, you know, we've definitely increased that a lot. Um, Last month, um, July, we just did 889 surgeries, which is just insane. We have always been trying to increase. And I think we definitely see those numbers going down at the shelter. I think a lot of it is too, that not only are we doing more numbers, it's more people want to spay and neuter their pets. More people understand why they should spay and neuter their pets. Um, That's education from us. That's education from um, Memphis Animal Services. That's education from rescue groups. Um, So I think everybody plays that part in teaching the community why spay and neuter is important. And we're here to provide that service at an affordable cost. And it helps a lot.
0: Talk about living in a bubble of like what we do and privilege. When you said education, you know, my first thought is like, who doesn't know about spay and neuter? Bob Barker's been talking about this for decades you know, but of course it is, it still is something that millions of people across the country need to be educated on.
1: What I try to explain when people get frustrated, you know, sometimes people will come into the shelter and they'll want to reclaim their animals, um, and buy like a fertile permit without getting them fixed. And what I try to remind people is that, you know, we have to remember that at some point in our lives, we learned everything we know, right? Like some, some point somebody taught you, Maybe how to ride a bike, or that you should wear a seatbelt in a car, or that you should look both ways before you cross the street. At some point in my life, someone taught me that you should spay and neuter your pets, right? Just like at some point in my life, someone taught me, don't buy dogs from breeders, rescue dogs. These are lessons that I learned, whether through shows I was watching, people I was around, my parents, you know, all of these sources, well, if we're talking about people in, in minority populations, lower income populations, that maybe their parents never learned that lesson. Those aren't. Those aren't people they're exposed to on social media. They're not shows they're watching. So there's an information gap that I think we have a huge responsibility to fill. And one of the ways we're trying to do that and work collaboratively with Brittany is that Brittany's bread and butter sweet spot is churning them out, okay? She's got this two vets that are amazing, high volume, high quality spay neuter vets that can churn out these surgeries like nobody else in town and do a better job of it. And we've seen the progress of that with feral cats specifically. Spay Memphis has long been the spot where you bring a a cat in a trap. And we've seen a massive reduction in the community cat problem in our community because of that. You know, when I tell people what our shelter intake for cats has been historically, they're always like, what? Because I'm like 80, 85% dogs. Um, It's crazy. But one of the things that um, we realize is that their, their niche is while they do education and things like that, they don't have a team of people out there on the streets. They don't have officers rolling around in vehicles. They need to focus on efficient, high-quality, high-volume surgery. We need to be their marketing team. We need to be their advertisers and we need to bring them that business and we need to bring them the business they're not already getting. So some of what Brittany and I have talked about, and we're actually, we have a planning call next week about is how can we take the people that we're meeting on neglect calls, right? So we go out, maybe a dog, it's healthy, it's loved, but you know, it's not fixed. Um, Maybe they need to help improving their dog house. Well, how can we be a holistic Provider of services and say, let's get you a better doghouse, let's get you the vaccines, and let's pay for you to get your pet fixed at Spay Memphis, where you're going to have this high quality experience. And so, those kind of partnerships about bridging the gap. And the key there is that we're going to go offer something they want. They want a doghouse, they want access to our pet food pantry. So, we're building a bridge by having a relationship with them and saying, we want to help you keep your pets. If I could put a billboard on every corner that said, I do not want to take your dog from you. Like, I think there's this misconception that we ride around like hunting for dogs to take. We don't want to take your dog. We want to help you provide a high quality life for your dog. And that only happens if the shelter in your community is partnering to provide access to low cost or free spay and neuter, which is exactly what Brittany and I have said we want 2020 and beyond to look like.
0: You know, people do need services, and I I don't think I can mention the economy too much. To be honest, I, it it is that big of a deal, and and people need to have access to care of all types. Budget wise, for you in Memphis, have you had to reforecast?
1: Um, I've been fortunate enough that my budget held pretty steady because I happen to work for a pretty fiscally responsible government and mayor Strickland has made that a core tenant well before COVID hit where we had a really good balanced budget. So our services didn't have to get cut, but the need on the back end, So while as my budget may not have been cut the need from the community, you know, just today I was working on our pet food pantry that we, we did a, we have a Shelby County Animal Welfare Coalition that Brittany and myself are a part of the steering committee for. And we started a pet food pantry at the beginning of this. And the requests were there at the beginning. They sort of dropped off for a while, but now that the $600 is going away, the protection from utility cutoff is going away, all of those sort of things, our requests are skyrocketing. So it's not even so much that my resources from the city have gone away. It's that the demand from the community for assistance is is climbing. And so luckily for us, we've gotten some donors who have stepped up and said that they want to be a help of this community outreach. And we're going to really try to partner and use some of those funds to provide access to to what Brittany and her team at Spay Memphis do um, by covering that cost. Because this is not a time where we can have because of loss of income, people stop getting their pets fixed. I,
0: I don't think you're gonna see the requests for help slow down anytime soon, to be perfectly honest. We don't have endless money either. So targeting resources, neighborhoods that need the services the most, right? You know, talking about making every budget dollar, every dollar count and stretch is so important. Brittany, are you are you targeting your services currently based on need?
2: Not as much right now due to COVID. You know, we're not going out in the community much. Pre COVID, we would do events, community centers, things like that um, in the communities we thought were most in need. What we're doing right now is as soon as we did close for six weeks during uh, the height of the beginning of this, anyway. And um, so that six weeks made a huge difference. We had, you know, hundreds of surgeries to make up. So we came back the beginning of May and we came back full force. Um, we went ahead and put our second vet on full-time staff. And um, so we were running two vets every day. And then I secured a donor to help with surgeries from pet owners who were affected by COVID-19. It's used almost every day. So that's what our target is right now.
0: You know, this this demand, you both sound pretty cool calm, collected about the next few months, but I'm over here running around like my hair is on fire because I can't control my emotions. <laughs> but when we are faced with more difficult decisions for budgets and life-saving, that's the question. Like, what, what do we do? How do we make those decisions?
1: So, I and I agree. And, and I think that what's been eye-opening about this for sure is that reliance upon traditional methodologies, reliance upon traditional uh, funding sources, you're going to have to start being creative. Creative problem solving, is the key to, I think, most industries right now, but certainly animal welfare. And one thing that I've learned is that, you know, when I look back before I got to animal services, I think that a lot of people didn't associate a government municipal shelter as being a place where you would donate money to, right? Like, well, no, they're taxpayer funded. Like, I give to a 501c3, like, that's where my money goes. Well, There is a very nice clause for those municipal shelter directors listening, if you don't know this, there is a very nice clause in the IRS code that allows us to also provide tax deductible donations to people who are interested in supporting the work we do. And so we focus our efforts on getting individual donors to support the work we do that goes above and beyond core taxpayer-funded services. An example of that would be We didn't used to do heartworm treatment. We got some grants and donor funding to start offering heartworm treatment in shelter for heartworm-positive dogs, thus increasing their adoption rate. So same thing with spay and neuter. You know, we're looking to people who, and you hear sometimes on the news that the wealthier among us have fared pretty well through this and that financially haven't necessarily suffered the way some of our middle and lower income Uh, citizens have. So it's about turning to those people and saying, here's how we're going to help keep animals out of the shelter and in the community. These are the action steps that we're going to do. And it's going to be providing pet food, and it's going to be providing spay and neuter, and it's going to be providing access to medical care. And so that's really where our focus has been. We have turned right back to the community that is calling us for services, and we're saying this is the community's problem. This is the community's problem to solve. Um, And so we need your help. And so we've gotten some, some great donations built up and thankfully they're there because the the future is going to be not just that, can someone afford a low cost surgery, even, you know, with the grant fund, but can they even afford the $20, you know, the $20 copay that goes with it will let us fill that gap. So it's about trying to, if we're going to start taking fewer animals from the community, then we need to step up our other side of the game, which is helping uh, keep pets out there in, In the community. And so, us being a back end partner to what Brittany is doing, I think is going to be critical moving
0: forward. Jumping back to the topic of targeting uh, that resource question, right? Let's get the money, the services where it needs to be. And then, you know, to do that, we create the relationships in the community so we can address. You know problems before they become a bigger problem. Yeah. How do you approach this?
1: You know, one of the the biggest keys that we've found in terms of getting buy in, uh, you know, when you talk about like getting these people who who you need to get in the door to spay Memphis, has been asking the question, what do you need? So, like what you just talked about, like what 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 are these people? What what motivates them? Right? Because we have this issue all the time at the shelter. Um, I, I can tell somebody all day long till I'm blue in the face that well, there's too many pets and it'll result in shelter euthanasia. And if 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 that's not something that's of importance to them, they just want their dog back with his testicles, then that's that's not a pressing issue. So then you try to go to the conversation about you know all the things that we all talk about about behavior and cancer and you know all the other reasons to do it. But none of that has been as successful as looking at a person more holistically and saying, I want spay neuter to be one of the complement of services that I provide to you. I want you to see the MAS truck driving down the street and not be worried, but be grateful and look at that as, oh, here comes the resource team. And so when we look at like, you know, people who are potentially losing their jobs or losing their income or things like that. We've gotten great feedback from people for the pet food pantry or whatever we do saying, thank you so much. And so it's starting to turn this tide where we're becoming an ally and a resource instead of the the big bad animal control. And so I think the best thing that we have started focusing on, and we actually started working on this before COVID, Brittany, right, is we're going to start doing, and this is just, I think, an idea that anybody could consider. We're going to start doing one Monday a month that is ours. It's our MAS Mondays, and we're going to pay for the whole day, and we're going to start booking appointments for large breed adult dogs only, and we are going to get those appointments we're going to book those people based on calls we go on out in the community so i think that when you talk about like increasing buy-in for spay and neuter there's the low hanging fruit that are going to call and make an appointment with britney and there's some of that higher hanging fruit that is going to have to probably come as a referral to us from us and uh you want to not go to court you want to not get a ticket like you know we'll do it for free. Let, let's help you out with it. So I would just say that you know, as people are dealing with the economy, look at what somebody needs more than just what you want. You want spay and neuter because it's good for your shelter. You want spay and neuter because you love animals and you don't want them to be euthanized. What does that pet owner want? And if you can provide them what they want, then maybe you can have a better luck of getting what you want too, which is getting the pet fixed
0: clearly, I did very good research for this episode. Uh, you just mentioned a ticket. Alexis, do you have a mandatory spay-neuter ordinance? We do. All right. Let's get into yeah. it. All right. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. But it's not at all where I thought we'd go today, but let's do it. I don't think you're going to find mandatory spay-neuter on the list of programs, policies, ordinances that will help you get your community to no kill. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. It is seen, I think, rightfully so, as counterproductive, punitive. Uh, you know, you're punishing the people who really just needed access to surgery, right? Those are the people who are going to end up with their pets taken away. And then we're adding reclaim fees. And, you know, it just it's not something I say has a lot of support. I hate this word, but progressive animal welfare community. And to be honest, I think it, you know, may even be rooted in, uh, a lot of judgments about who should own pets and and all of that stuff. But all that aside, it did sound like, you know, for you in Memphis there that you do find it helpful.
1: I think in the hands of people using it effectively, it can be. And, you know, the person that I'll sort of, um, call upon in the world who I think explains it really well is Ed Jamison at Dallas Animal Services. So they have one that they actually put into effect more recently than Memphis has. Memphis has had it since 2012. And so you can buy your way out of it. You can buy a fertile permit for $200 if you don't want to get your pet fixed. It is a secondary offense. So think of it like a seatbelt. You know, you can't get pulled over for not wearing a seatbelt. So we can't issue a spay neuter violation unless there's another violation present i.e running at large or not wearing tags things like that but where we find it helpful is as a last resort not a first go-to step and by that i mean when we go out to a house and the pets aren't fixed we're not giving people a ticket right then that's that's not like where we start it starts with a conversation it starts with offering of resources. It starts with referrals to spay Memphis. It, it It's a conversation and trying to get them in compliance. And then certainly what we just talked about with the MAS, you know, day at spay Memphis, we're hoping that that will help too. Well, hey, we can do it for free for you. The spay neuter thing really sort of lives in the, at the later stages of that, when there's just a real resistance. And I'll tell you, we don't, we don't like Go sit in court just on spay neuter cases. Like that's not what we're doing. Like we're in court dealing with overall cruelty or neglect cases, and one of the charges amongst many would be the spay neuter violation. But it it does it it helps us from a shelter reclaim perspective. It helps us. Um, it helps us just put a little teeth behind it for the highest hanging fruit is, is a way I look at it. But no, if you try to make mandatory spay neuter, your only tool, it's pointless. I don't think that that is your tool at all. Um, we use it as a last resort, but we try to everything else first.
0: I'm so glad we're talking about this because controversy, amazing for increasing the number of listeners to the podcast. So super (laughs) glad this one popped up. Uh, you know, but the episode, you know, is born out of the spay neuter is the only way mentality question, and those laws can really be, I think, a, a talking point, a sticking point. I don't know what the right term is for a group of people who believe that it's like it ends up obfuscating the discussion about other programs we know save lives because it's like enforce or nothing else will work. Like that's the call from from advocates for that. And if you're not enforcing, then you're failing. And then, you know, ah, I'm just, this is one of these where I'm like fumbling miserably. And I just get, I'm going to end it with like, (laughs) do you know what I'm saying? Um, But you do? No, I do. The people who believe that spay and neuter is everything are very likely the ones who spent a lot of time and effort getting that ordinance passed. And it takes focus away from what should be talked about and supported.
1: Yeah. No, and and, and I, I think that you are right in that, you know, so many of the angry people emails, um, you know, your 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 keyboard activists who um they're always you're not enforcing spay and neuter enough. You're not you know, and 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 that is a, a go to banner headline. I agree. But I also go back to what you said earlier about the strong women, you know, I inherited this. I think that if used correctly. I can mitigate some of of those negative effects and only use it where it's appropriate. You know, I think it's like any tool belt, right? So you put on a tool belt to go work on a housing project and what you needed was a Phillips head screwdriver to get that screw into the board and instead you used a hammer um you know or a jackhammer. So, yeah, that's that that was the wrong tool for the job. So, I think if you're if you're appropriately using it, um then I haven't found it to and hey maybe i'm wrong you know i now that i sit here and think about this john i'm like well i've never lived without it i haven't worked in an environment without it and it's one of those things where once you have it it's kind of hard to go back off of it because of that that expectation
0: um i can't be convinced that it's a good thing on any level i mean the way you're using it as a tool and i think that does sound positive you're focused on life saving and you're awesome alexis but What if you left tomorrow and God forbid Memphis hired someone, you know, who doesn't think the way you do.
1: But, you know, it's funny as I sit here as someone and Brittany, I would love to hear your thoughts on it too, since you live in this world every day and I'm, I don't want to dominate it, but I I would just say this is like, you know, I have been tuning in and trying to be a part of every conversation that's happening about this you know community resource driven model and keeping pets in home and owner surrender prevention and being resource driven and so i think like you said if you look at it holistically spay neuter by itself isn't the answer and a mandatory spay neuter ordinance isn't the answer but i don't know if you're doing all of this myriad list of things. If that's one thing that lives over here in a tiny piece, if that negates all the other things, I, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Is is it's is getting rid of a mandatory spay neuter ordinance in the city of Memphis a battle worth fighting that is going to create enough of a positive result that it will offset the negativity that will result from it versus our limited capacity and energy and programming being put into all the things we know are gonna make a difference, which is going out and providing access to resources and being a proactive thing. You know, it's one of those balance things. It's like which, which, which hill am I dying on today? Which fight am I am I getting involved in? And so I think at the at the current time, my focus has been on adding programming that is more community-minded rather than focusing on that law that we don't even use in a... We try not to use it in a punitive way.
0: Yeah. As you were talking, I, I was thinking about what getting rid of it... Like, what would that even mean? I don't know that this has happened anywhere, but you could you could see the headline, right? City says you no longer need to fix your pet.
1: Yeah. From like a PR. Yeah. You know,
0: Brittany, your clinic goes from 6,700 surgeries to 4,000. You know, I just... man. I just don't know how you could change it.
2: Um, So I, my thoughts on it are a little different, I guess. So I've never worked in the animal welfare world where we didn't have it in Memphis. So to me, it's just always been there. It's just always been, you know, a part of the spay neuter world for me. We don't really use it as a tool to convince people to get their pets fixed until it's a last resort. You know, you have that person who's constantly having backyard puppies and giving them away and They just don't see any reason to do it. And, you know, it doesn't matter that, you know, all the reasons we've listed on why spay neuter is good, why it's important, why it helps the shelter, why it helps the community. You throw out that, hey, you know what? There's actually an ordinance saying that you have to. Sometimes they're like, oh, well, okay, how much does it cost? Cool. So that is a tool we use there. But it's not something I think that a lot of people even know about. And maybe, Alexis, I'm wrong. In the animal welfare world in Memphis, they all know about it. And they're all really, you know, advocating for it. But just your average person on the street, I could probably go outside my house and ask every neighbor I have and not a single one of them would know it existed. It's not like it's advertised around here that often. So I I don't know if Alexis, you have a different thought about that. So I think it's it's not exactly the same as when you think of communities going out and, you know, like M.A.S. isn't going out and looking for dog testicles everywhere. Um, it just happens to be um I think you explained it well, like a another tool in our toolbox that's just there to
0: help. so for this episode, I had this dumb way that I was trying to like frame it up and and again, very oversimplified. But if I had a million dollars and I said, I'm going to save lives in my community, you know, again, knowing that every community is different and data should be driving the decisions, but just generally, like how much of that million dollars in this budget would I put to span neuter? and Keeping in mind like the economy, but how would we chop that million bucks up?
1: You know, I I certainly don't have the magic answer, but one thing that has kind of helped me to sort of think through that same scenario is if space isn't an issue, your ability to take more time to make that decision increases vastly, right? So if now all of a sudden... I don't have a bunch of animals crammed in the shelter and I know I've got trucks full coming in after this. In that world, my decision time was I don't have time to to, to figure something else out. I got to have that kennel empty and clean for the next batch of animals that are coming in. I don't have this time. I don't have time to talk to somebody about spay and neuter. I don't have time to figure all this out. Time, time, time. Now where capacity is lower and It has to be lower because we have fewer people in the building for social distancing and all of that. We can take a little more time for that dog with the behavior issue or this dog with a medical issue. And we can spend more time reaching out to people. And we can also spend more time helping keep the animal safe at its home until the point in time when we can achieve spay and neuter either, you know, through owner cooperation, through financial ability, through capacity at Spay Memphis. But we're buying ourselves time. We're buying ourselves the luxury of time to be able to get to spay and neuter. And I use one of our um, local outreach groups um, they're called All Fours Rescue, and they, they work here in the Memphis community. And they go into our low-income neighborhoods, and they try to provide resources for outdoor dogs, dog houses, things like that. And they'll tell you all day long that sometimes it takes a month, two months, three months of repeat visits, of bringing food, of building a relationship with those people because who are you? You're some white lady who drove in to their neighborhood that they've never seen before saying, like, let me tell you what to do with your dog. But so you've got to have some time to build that relationship and build that trust level. And eventually they can get people to agree, okay, I'll get my pet fixed because you've shown me that you are not you know, some fleeting person who's driven through to just get what they want. You're here to help me. And so... I think the best thing that we can do is spend our money on things that buy us time, give us time to get to the solution, because it's the if it's the dog that's dying now, we probably do need to prioritize that over spay-neuter, but we need to prioritize that by spending money on what would have kept that dog in its home in the first place.
0: Truly, who knows what lies ahead, right? We've got COVID, the economy. And you know, maybe other things we're gonna have to deal with, but what do all of these things end up doing to intake? Um, you know, how effectively are we able to leverage existing resources, other nonprofits, other animal welfare organizations? Um, but yeah, I mean, what will intake in Memphis look like?
1: What's been good is because, you know, NACA and some other national groups put into place some some great recommendations, you know. Right when this started, March thirteenth, Friday the thirteenth, I remember that came out, um, where they recommended everybody go to this emergency intake only mode. Well, guess what that caused? Yes, it probably inconvenienced some people, but you know what it did is it started shifting the burden of this great responsibility more equally throughout the community. And I can see even within my officer pool. It's changed their jobs and they've had to accept that the answer isn't go see stray dog, pick up stray dog, put dog on truck, drive dog to shelter. Like that's not it anymore. And we've let them know your job's changing. You know, now it is go see stray dog. Where does stray dog live? let's talk to neighbors let's find where where stray dog is let's talk to the neighbor who found the dog can you keep the dog and help look for an owner you know can we we'll provide you food we'll do shots what do you need like we do found fosters all the time so if we can keep this sort of mindset going I think what we're gonna find is that shelter intake goes down and we can start being more out there being the street team for Brittany And I can start getting more animals to go to Brittany that need to be there by being the advocate for that and providing financial support. And then maybe I can get to a point where my clinic in-house at the shelter has spare capacity and we can start doing some of that too, which we haven't been able to do because we've been so overburdened with being beyond capacity to care with a full shelter. So I think that the hope with all of this is that maybe we can find a way to better spend our taxpayer dollars better use our resources to make more of an impact so that, John, your $1 million that you have to donate, we're going to spend it better for you. Uh, Your money is going to go farther because we're not doing the same old broken thing that didn't work over and over before. Did we miss anything?
0: you want to hit anything else before we call it good?
1: Um, The only thing that I would say that I think, you know, for people listening in their communities that feel like, you know, maybe they don't They feel kind of on an island. Um, One of the best things that we've done is we formed a coalition last year and we used a lot of the Best Friends guidance documents. Anybody who wants to look at that, you go to the Best Friends website and there's a whole toolkit about starting a coalition and you can model yourself after like NKLA or Nashville has a coalition. So we formed that. And I'll tell you when the pandemic started, that coalition relationship really became critical for all of us because we were checking in with each other every day. Who's got what in terms of PPE? Who's doing this? Are you closing your doors? Are you doing surgeries? What are you doing? And what's formed out of that are really, I think, relationships that are going to benefit the community as a whole. City of Memphis and Shelby County, which is what we're in, is better if Brittany and I talk all the time. It's better if I talk to the Humane Society. It's better if all the shelters talk to each other. We're better if we work collaboratively. And so I would just encourage if you have a spay-neuter clinic in your town and you're not talking to them all the time, like fix that. (laughs) And, And vice versa, right, Brittany? Like you need to know what the shelter's doing.
2: Yeah, you want to have a good relationship, and not only that, and all of us working together is the only way we're going to solve the problem. Spay neuter is part of the answer. I think the real the real answer to the problem is collaboration with all the animal organizations.